Today, we are interviewing the wonderful artist FDOT. We hear his origin story. We talk about his early work to his evolution as an artist, ranging from creating murals for WeWork offices in Mexico to his NFT collection to collaborations with brands like Nike and Tops. We also hear about FDOT's inspiration from other artists. It's an amazing conversation walking through his career and also his thoughts on things like NFTs, the value of art, mathematics, inspiration, and it's a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed the episode and please make sure to follow, like, subscribe across YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So here is the wonderful FDOT. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today FDOT. Eric, aka FDOT, is a visual artist, designer, and creative director based in Brooklyn, New York. His art has been exhibited all around the world and he's collaborated with massive brands like Nike, Tops, and Chicago Bulls. He's had a really interesting, exciting career, and I'm excited to talk to him today. FDOT, thanks so much for being here, man. Hey, what's going on, Tony? Thanks for having me. Really stoked to chat. Oh, looking forward to it. There's so many things we're going to cover. I'm just trying to think about the order to go, but how about we start with, like, let's say, a younger FDOT maturing at at school, thinking about art. Uh, Were you studying art? Like, what were you thinking about your career at that time? I feel like it's a formative time period. So I, I guess in asking you how you became an artist, can we maybe go to your education, like college, and how that was the path you went on? Yeah, even before college, I was always really interested in art, and, and I didn't see too many other subjects that were as interesting to me. I, I loved math and science for their own reasons, but when I started to combine those things with art was really what would excite me the most. Uh, so I had a, a lot of influences growing up. Like I was very lucky to be surrounded by art growing up. Not everybody is, but my grandmother was an artist, and... I had an awesome art program in my high school. I mean, it wasn't huge or anything, but the, the people that taught the art classes themselves were, were practicing artists, some of them, and just getting that exposure to see like it's possible to do this as a career was really important for me in high school years. Um, everything from like darkroom photography to graphic design, which ended up being my college major. Um, I, I always wanted to be creative for a living, but trying to find out what part of the business world or the um just the world in general what part of society would would see value and and welcome my specific style of art yeah it's interesting you say like your your grandmother was an artist because a lot of artists i i talk to sometimes it's something they have to like fight back on right where it's like oh mom and dad says artist dude like calm down go to study business something like that was it something that was always like a legitimate path to you because of your grandmother or like your family encouraged you was, was it something that you didn't feel any sort of inhibition to pursuing, like, seriously? I had some pushback from my parents. You know, my, my grandmother was an artist, but she wasn't a very successful artist. She was doing it mostly as a hobby, and she would help some neighbors and people around, um, around Long Island where she lived with, with pieces for their homes, like commissions. But it wasn't some, she wasn't shown in museums or galleries that much or anything like that. Uh, so... Building a career, obviously, my parents wanted me to do something that was marketable and that had a place in today's business world, uh, where my grandmother created watercolor paintings and stained glass windows and lamps and things like that. And it seems like it's a lost art with with a lot of these these mediums that are getting quickly replaced by digital mediums. But I knew that I could do certain things in the commercial world that would help me get to the point where I could later explore the type of art that I wanted to. So I saw that path, like my dad kind of nudged me towards graphic design and said, like, this is probably a good idea because of 
how it's in demand. And I kind of said like, I don't want to do that, but I'll check it out. And I, I fell in love with it. I love design now. And I love typography and everything that comes along with, with graphic design. It shaped my aesthetic, who I am and how I see the world. Sometimes I have to turn off that side of my brain to let it go and really be who I was before I learned all that stuff. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that I found in graphic design. I'm glad I studied that and had all those projects that led me here. So I know like yeah. for a while, like looking into your background, you, you didn't go straight into full-time art, right? Right after college, you were working as a graphic designer, a few different situations. What, can you tell me like the path of what your career was when you graduated from college and what you thought then being an artist meant you were just having a creative outlet of some kind. So I'm the kind of person that doesn't really love routine and every few months I like switching things up. So even in college, I, I went to a place that they, ha they didn't have semesters, they had quarters. So every three months it was something different, even including the summer, they had some programming over the summer. So it was every three months. I felt like my life was kind of divided amongst these quarters of the year. And when I graduated, it kind of kept happening like that. So I had an internship for three months and that led to another job for three months that was abroad in Europe. Uh, and then I came back and tried to be a full-time freelancer and scrape together what I could basically get from various contacts and resources and even like Craigslist, just finding gigs that kind of fit my skill set or even a little bit outside of my skill set. And I just learned on the job to figure out how to how to keep doing what I loved on the side and just make enough money so I could keep doing that really. And it felt like I was living the dream in some ways because I was in Manhattan uh, living there right out of college, but not really making enough to stay there. It wasn't very sustainable. Uh, so I did end up getting a full-time job. I worked for a marketing agency after getting a little bit of that travel out of my system uh, for that early, the early twenties, I worked for an, this experiential marketing agency uh, where I was doing graphics for different branded events everything from like a printed vinyl wall that people can interact with by like writing on it. But there's still some like design work that goes involved to like wrapping a vehicle in graphics or the invitation to the event, uh, a lot of event marketing materials. And I started to see my work big on walls, even though it wasn't really my art, it was sort of pseudo creative and it was through the lens of a brand's brand guidelines. Uh, but, I got, I got to, I got to have that feeling of like touching my, my work and then walking away from it. And that kind of led me to wanting to start to paint murals and see my lettering and my type, uh, fill the entire wall with a, with an uplifting message of some kind or some kind of clever, uh, interactive piece that people could take a selfie with. That was like when selfie culture was like becoming huge. So I started painting murals and started looking around for walls that I could paint, taking photos of them, sometimes just Photoshopping the mural before painting the real mural and trying to get people to sort of see what I'm doing before having to get permission to paint the wall. That led on to some amazing mural gigs. Eventually I left that job to try to do it full time, did some more traveling. And when I got back from traveling, the same kind of thing happened where I had to go get another full-time job. Uh, just couldn't make it work yet. The first few years of, of any business, any freelance, especially creative are the hardest years, just getting your network. So, um, as much as I had intended to, to try and give it my all, this one job kind of fell in my lap or the, they reached out to me for an interview. I didn't fall in my lap. I had to still earn it, but th they reached out to me. I wasn't looking for the job. It was, uh, that was my job at WeWork. And that was like my mid twenties where I spent three and a half years working with them as they were in their hyper growth phase, which was a really interesting time because they had just had this endless supply of walls and seemingly endless budget to do amazing projects. And so I could not, not only create the pieces myself, but 
art direct, other people on the team, starting to like get my chops with that and hiring local artists that were in these different areas. They sent me down to South America and the rest was kind of history. That's where I like really found my artist community and then eventually led on to like the style that I'm working in now. Well, that's, that's really awesome. Like the whole, that WeWork situation seems kind of like, like a crucible moment where you, you have to be in the right place at the right time for sure. Like, and developed your craft under like a really great environment. Uh, when you left WeWork, was there like a point where I don't know, you've reached a certain level of like artistic maturity where like, okay, I'm ready now. Like what, what causes someone to go from, let's say taking that final leap to, to like leave and go all in on, on, on their artwork. Everybody has a different capacity for risk. And for me, I wanted to have at least a year of bills kind of covered in the bank and have some projects coming in so that when I left, I didn't have nothing to do. I didn't have to then go find clients. Uh, so two projects kind of lined up for me at that time. It was October, 2019, two mural projects. One of them was for a mall in Connecticut. And one of them was for, um, USA network in, in, uh, their offices at Rockefeller center. So I was like, these two gigs are perfect. They were enough for me to, to be able to feel comfortable leaving financially. And then also the, just the company, like there was a lot of chaos happening at WeWork at the time. And I wanted to, I, I kind of saw what was, what was happening. And I just said, I'm, I'm probably, they're probably not going to go public at this time. So I'm going to go. This is not really much of a reason for me to stay. They didn't even have much of a job for me at that time. Okay. It, I, I, I had kind of peaked in terms of my growth at the company. And when I returned back from South America, it was like not much exciting stuff for me to work on. So that was, that was the catalyst, um, those two projects. And then just like the timing of, of WeWork sort of having a moment and then uh, I, I know it's always scary and I had to talk to a lot of people about it before I made the final decision of when to put in your notice. Cause there's so many amazing things that you love about these, these, these companies, the, the teams, the people, the, the actual end user of the product that you're designing. Like it gives you a lot of, uh, satisfaction when you can work as a team, something that I, I don't get to do as much here at my company, um, so on like a large project like that. Right. But that was the catalyst. Hopefully that answers the question well. It yeah. does. It's, it's funny. Like I, I, I left Facebook under like a similar circumstance, not not to become full time artist, but leaving a environment that was tough to leave. But I had to, you know, for like growth and just striking out on my own, so I can kind of relate to that. So let, let's say, okay, let's say I I met you in that time period. Like, okay, I meet F dot. This guy's just left WeWork. He's he's a, he's a full time like artist, creative director. I'm like, wow, cool. Uh, how would you like? explain your work and your creative process, your inspiration. If you just met someone on the street like me, uh, when you went all in and it kind of reached this point where you felt comfortable to, to just pursue this full time, like what would you describe yourself as and your inspirations, the, the kind of artwork you were doing, uh, your creative process? I think I went through a few phases where I, I wanted to like pick a niche and stick to it. So first it was lettering and typography. And then that, that then led me on to murals. And then I kind of realized that murals is a medium and not a discipline because uh, you can do illustration, abstract art. You can do basically anything as a mural. You can even do sculpture as a mural. So I, I started to just think bigger. At the time, I was calling myself a muralist and a street artist because I just loved the thrill uh, that WeWork gave me of like traveling around and, and doing murals. And then on the weekends, like getting up on a, on a wall with a, a local artist that I just met and 
that thrill of like, we're going to improvise something really big and it's going to impact the community in some way. We'll leave it here for them to enjoy. No bad vibes. Just like really trying to uplift people is what I want to do with my art. Give them a breath of fresh air, like a break in the day to remind themselves why life is good and why it's worth living and why even though with all the chaos in this world, there's beauty. And um, I hope that the simplicity of my style also brings you back to childhood a little bit of like when you would be drawing before you started judging your drawings. You know, everyone says I can't draw, but they don't really practice it. So, um, but when they, they used to draw <laughs> and I hope that my, my work kind of makes you want to draw a little bit. Yeah. No, yeah. I love that, that message where I think one of the things I'm pulling out of it is like beauty in the chaos and like trying to inspire people. And I think sometimes media or art or, or creativity, obviously it should show like the full spectrum of the human experience, but shining a light on like uplifting people, I think is very, is a great message and noble. Cause I know like we all, we all go through our own sort of challenges. Uh, I'm sure like, you know, you mentioned sometimes you have to like, really hustle to, to get things together. Um, what, what were, what were some like the critical moments that you think shaped your experience that way? Cause I know like, for example, in, in 2014, you went through kind of like a, like a, a near death experience for a second that uh, kind of made you think about life from like a, like a new slate perspective, like maybe just very briefly. Uh, can you talk about that experience and how that's kind of maybe like motivated you to, to what you are today? Sure. Yeah. So this is the story that I, sh I share as like my origin story as an artist and what shaped that whole like uplifting message that I have. Um, when I first got to New York, I was mentioning to you that I lived in Manhattan and I was kind of living my own version of my dream where I was sort of making it work. And it was just like such an exciting time uh, living there right in the middle of where you know, I grew up outside the city and I always kind of wanted to live here. And so that was like my riding high moment. But one day it all kind of came crashing down when out of nowhere, the building that I was living in uh, caught on fire and it was happening from the outside first, like in the backyard. And it came in through the windows of my apartment. And as soon as I, I was home too, while it was going on, I was just doing some painting. And while, uh, while I realized it, I had to basically like get all my things and leave and get out of there because there was a clear exit. And it was just so scary to see what was happening. I, I felt like I was in a nightmare, right? And then eventually we came back into the apartment. It didn't, it didn't totally collapse. Everything was, was either burned or water damaged. And it was just such an ugly, scarring image that it was like a, a turning point for me where I was like, I can see this as a tragedy that I suffered, that I, that, that I'm going to be affected by and like, let it stop me from doing what I was trying to do. But I, as I was digging through the things that I, that were left over uh, from the fire, cause there was still some stuff that was, that was salvageable. I found my scanner and inside the scanner was a drawing. It was all soaking wet, but the piece that said optimists, and it was a drawing I was working on earlier that week. And it was while I was feeling really uplifted myself. And I, I realized like I have this, I run a little bit higher than the average person in terms of attitude and mood. Uh, and I want to share that with people. And I think that experience like showed me what was important about life. Because even though I lost everything I own, all my art, all my equipment, my clothing, my gadgets, my, we lost a pet, unfortunately. That was the most, uh, the saddest part of it because those aren't replaceable really. So it was like, so much loss, but I realized I still had my health. I still had my, my family, my friends, my hands to draw with like so much that I had to be grateful for. And it, it reminded me of like the most important things in life are those things. 
and not the things that I really lost. Even a pet, you know, you have a lot of pets over your lifetime and it's, it was something that we got over. And I, I tried to use this as uh, a catalyst for me to lean in even further on that optimist message. And so I created a whole campaign around it, did prints, t-shirts and hats, uh, just to get the message out there and reward the people who supported me, like kind of say, thank you. There were some, there were some lovely humans who just helped me out after that fire that pitched in to help me get back on my feet. And, uh, it started just like that, giving them away for free, but eventually it became this staple design, like in my visual language. And I came up with this idea of creating art for optimists and that's what I've stuck to since. Yeah. I, I love that message of art for optimists because it's something I feel the world really needs at times. And, and it's kind of funny because I'm sure like, not funny, but uh, poetic in the sense that in that moment, I'm sure things really fucking sucked. But if it wasn't for that moment, maybe you wouldn't have had this perspective. And I think everybody kind of like maybe relate to that about how sometimes challenges can become strengths. Because um, I know like maybe another thing that I don't know if you'd call this a challenge, but uh, you're, you're legally colorblind, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, has that been like an advantage or disadvantage for you? Or is that something that has been a strength? Like, how has that affected your, your artwork? Um, I just want to say one thing before we move on from the optimist. I feel like in that moment I had, I was like looking at myself in the third person almost. And I was like, the, I can either wallow in misery of this tragedy. I, was, I mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to just say one more thing on it. Yeah. I can either like wallow in misery on this tragedy and like hopefully bring myself out of it. Or I can rewrite the story right now and I can write chapter two and decide how it's gonna go. And I never felt more motivation in my life like to, to use what I still had, which wasn't very much, but use it all for good. Use it all for, for a, a way to just share energy with people and share something that's needed. Um, and for a while, I worked only in black and white. The, the, the Optimist was just a black and white sketch. All my lettering was pretty much exclusively black and white. Uh, I saw it as like a foundational thing. Like w before you add color, it's good to figure out like how your composition is working and how your letter forms are working. And it was something I learned in design school, but it was also something that I, I had as a, a crutch a little bit because I knew that I was diagnosed colorblind. Uh, still don't really know how colorblind I am, to be honest, because it's hard to measure and it messes with me at the weirdest times. Like I can see every color according to me, but then when I'm out, people are like, yo, like what color is that? And I'll be like green or, or gray. And they're like, no, nah, man, that's purple. <laughs> so I think it just, it, uh, it hits me at the weirdest times. Usually it's the lighting because color is really just light bouncing off of things. At least our perception of color. So I learned that we all see color a little bit differently, even if you're not colorblind. And I just kind of embraced that once I learned that. And also the, being around those other artists at WeWork, seeing how they used color firsthand, seeing how they were taking inspiration from different places, because every artwork we were making was supposed to be custom to the location. Every, every main, main artwork, at least in the spaces, was, like, was a custom piece inspired by the colors of that area. And I just saw it as a challenge. And I had an amazing creative director at the time that kind of encouraged me and I learned new tools, like just measuring and mixing the colors digitally. So you can just slide back and forth, like how much blue you want, and you can just mathematically check it. So you can see how my love of math is still here. And I'm actually learning more in my thirties about how it's just like there in my art, like math is everywhere. If you think about it. So let's expand on that a bit more. Like, so what do you mean by that exactly? Like the, how does math 
work with art uh, in ways that, like, how, how do you describe that? Well, when you study art, the people who are teaching it, they try to break down why certain images are more successful than others. And there's a bunch of rules. They're, they're meant to be sort of bended and broken with these rules. It's just like with graphic design is like you learn the rules so you can break the rules intentionally and make, and do it with style. Um, so I felt like when I was learning all these rules, like the rule of thirds, like in photography or the Fibonacci sequence in terms of, uh, proportions, just certain proportions look better than others to the human eye. And especially when you learn like the nuances of typography and you see like, oh, it's interesting how like the letter O actually comes above and below the baseline and the top line just to be optically, you know, look right. That's where it breaks the math. So I'm just fascinated by like how our eyes put together images and our brains put together images um, and how math is like used to break down, how, how humans have invented like formulas in math to, to assign like meaning to why certain things look good or how you can replicate something beautiful. And it's, it's in nature, right? Like the, the Fibonacci spirals all over. So oh, right. I, I don't know, that, that was really inspiring to me when I learned just like certain proportions. And I haven't gotten too into like complex math, but just like basic proportions is like the biggest one. Like sure. in my work specifically, like whenever I'm doing one of these pieces, like you see behind me, I'm choosing a canvas size and then I'm choosing a line weight. So there's two very specific measurements that have to look good together and not every proportion looks good together. If I did a, the same painting, but the lines were twice as thick, it might not look as good. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just noticing those things as I'm, I'm measuring, as I'm creating and finding beauty in my own way, you know? No, that's so cool. And I think um, maybe like later when I ask you about your, some of your inspirations and artists and stuff, um, maybe I'll see some of those like patterns of people that have more like math that seems clear in their artwork. Uh, I, I think it's also, it's really interesting to me. Like, I mean, I'm starting to put together like uh, a puzzle piece of who, who F dot is. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, what, where you come from, your, your experiences, challenges, the ups and downs, your interests like math. Uh, and it, it's interesting to me too, because uh, if I follow your career correctly, there's this point, maybe this was, I don't know if the timing is going to be after WeWork and stuff, but you did a lot of, you kind of broke through with a lot of interesting collapse with brands that are very cool and also related to things you actually care about, right? So you worked with Tops, worked with Nike, worked with the Chicago Bulls. And um, maybe later we talk about your childhood. It seems like some of those brands are super relevant to you. Uh, so maybe starting with tops, like how, how does, how does an artist, well, of course you in this situation, how do you like build that connection with the brand? Because it can be kind of game changing and can be obviously very great for your platform, great experience to work with these different types of people. How, how did that first, let's take the tops relationship first. How did that come together? And, and how did that project go? Pretty soon someone doesn't know what it is exactly. Well, um, uh, I guess like I'll say what it is first and then how it came about. So Tops reached out to 20 different artists back in early 2020 and commissioned us to create 20 cards each. So it was going back into their archive of famous rookie cards, mostly, uh, mostly legendary players from the past, not as many current players is where we started since those have a really popular collector base. And so. We all did the same 20 cards, but we gave it our own spin on it. And that was the first time I was working with such a small medium, like the two and a half by three and a half inch card. But I learned 
um, through that project, like different visual languages and how to work with imagery of people. Cause I don't typically draw people at all in my work. And it was a really fun challenge to get to tell each player's story in a unique way. How can I make it different from the other artists? What they're going to do? Like, don't go obvious. Do, who are they off the field? You know? So that, that, was, that was really fun and challenging for me. Like each, every two weeks, like a new design had to be finished and sent over to tops. And then they would put it out on their website for just two days. It was live and a very affordable, like $20 price point for a piece of art, but in collectible card format. So it was kind of a cool novel combination of contemporary art and trading cards or um, of baseball cards. Like, so how it came about is pretty spontaneous, actually. Like I just got an email <laughs> from somebody at Tops, like at the end of 2019 saying, hey, we've been following your work and we're putting together this project and we want you to do it. And what do you think, basically? And it was before the pandemic was even on our radar. And it was like, uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'm into this. And then I, I, little did I know all my other projects, almost all of them would get canceled because of my, you know, the murals weren't really happening during the pandemic. Yeah. So COVID really changed my business during that, while I was working on the TOPS project, that project definitely got me through uh, in terms of building something new, having a collector base to then see like who out of these card collectors are also interested in my art. So I was like sort of speaking their language and then they learned to speak my language. But baseball goes deep in my roots. Like I was a baseball player as a kid up until I found skateboarding at, at like age 13. But they, like I love baseball games. I love the Yankees grew up during like their glory days where they were winning like every single world yeah. series. So very nostalgic for me. And I try to work in that, that uh, part of my childhood, not just in my commercial work, but even in my personal art, just like what it felt like to go, what it felt like to be in close to New York city growing up. Like I get, I get a lot of energy from the city and, and the sports teams here. That That's so amazing. Cause well, so many things about that one, the fact that they just reached out to you, is kind of like, like a universe sign universe it happened at a time when COVID was happening so what if if it, if it didn't happen put it put you in like a tougher situation and the fact that it's so related to one of your interests you know it's not just like a random ass brand but something that matters a lot to you sounds like all these things fell into place and of course the tops thing led to other other collaborations as well other projects uh i know you worked with some basketball teams the new york knicks and the chicago bulls right so was that similarly did they find your work from tops and how did that feel? Because you're working arguably even closer with the sports teams that versus, you know, Tops is like kind of like sports, like third party adjacent. Uh, did you get, like, how did that feel maybe like as a sports fan? Did you get to know some of like the actual athletes? Do you work with like the team, like very directly uh, as a sports fan from the sounds of it? Uh, what was that feeling to actually work with literal sports teams? Well, the first sports team that I got to collaborate directly with was Chicago Cubs. So it was, it was almost two years ago now, I believe. Yeah. Two years ago in May, it was this project that they reached out to me. It was during my collaboration with tops. Uh, I hadn't even done a Cubs card yet, but they, I was on their radar, I guess. And they reached out to me to do a project for their mental health awareness campaign. And that's a, a topic that's really heavy on, on my heart as someone who struggles with certain, you know, phases of anxiety and, and, even depression of, of as an artist, we're so much in our head and it's important to comment on, on mental health. So I took that opportunity as like, okay, now I can get like more of myself out there and hopefully make other people feel less alone in their struggles. 
Um, they paired me up with Ian Happ, who is an outfielder for the Cubs, and he has a podcast and a whole uh, foundation where they uh, they do after school programs. He helps out bring change. It's not it's not his foundation, but he helps out bring change to mind. He's like their one of their main athletes that comes in and with, helps with the kids. And they paired me up with him to do a, a kind of a Zoom call first to show him what I was working on, talk about the collaboration. That was pretty surreal, man. Like getting to go face to face with someone who. You know, they're a real major league player, and not only that, but off the field, they're someone who gives back and really cares about people. So um, it's always nice when you, you meet someone who's made it so far in their career, but they're still so grounded. Um, and that was how, I, how I, my chat went with Ian. He was, like, really personable. And eventually I got to go out and, and check out a, a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. The craziest part of it all, though, was they ended up surprising me and giving me the first pitch. Of the game, really? Yeah, no, I don't know. that's crazy. Is that, is that on video? Is that like YouTube? Could I find them? It's it's up somewhere. Yeah, uh, there's a good photo I can send you. But that was like a surprise too, because I got there and they and I was expecting to like get the posters signed or do something, get a photo with them or something. But they they gave me a a, a jersey with my name on the back and oh, then shit. and uh, and a ball that was signed by Ian. And then I got to throw the first pitch. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I- Peak life moment, I'd say. You know, then Chicago for some reason really likes me because I got that call from the Bulls a few months later, and they were uh, thinking about jumping in on their first digital art collection in a really interesting way. Uh, they, were, they hired 23 artists to do remixes of the Chicago Bulls logo, and I did a little animated remix, something that I would love to see up on up on the big screen at one of the games. Just got me like pumped up. Even though I haven't been to Chicago Bulls games uh, in Chicago, I have been to one in, in New York. My grandmother, the artist who I was telling you about, was a big basketball fan, so even more than me. Uh, she would bring me to, bring us to Knicks games all the time. And uh, so that was, those two Chicago projects happened before I got any New York love from the sports teams. Uh, <laughs> still hoping one day to work with the Yankees, but I got it. Sure. It'll happen. I got, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in a rush. It'll happen when, it's, when the time is right. But the, the other team that I worked with was the Knicks, and I have that piece kind of queued up for you to show us later. If you okay. want to, if you want to pull it up now, or I can talk about it later. So, so maybe take a step back. So this is when, so when you started working with the Knicks, what was their like? How do they like brief you? They say, okay, I've thought. Here's what we want, and like, how does that process work? This one was interesting uh, because the first they did, I, I forgot to mention, they, they were doing this physical exhibition of artists painting on jerseys. Yeah. So that was like the first project I did with the Knicks that we're not looking, we're not looking at that right, right now, but uh, I had a similar aesthetic on the Jersey and I was kind of working with my paint markers in the studio, giving like some embellishing to the Jersey and drawing a map of, of Manhattan, basically in my memory of what it felt like to go to a Knicks game. And this natural sort of 30 degree angle, like city grid came out on the jersey and i just thought it would be a really cool way to elevate both of the pieces by animating it and and just kind of extending out some of the detail in this map uh so there's it's a six frame animation in terms of the direction that they got i got from the client they basically said what we weren't allowed to do they didn't say what we should do they just said you can't use players faces names numbers uh for this specific project and a couple other uh, restrictions uh, like, don't make it all about the logo. It was different from the Bulls project in that way. And I just had this idea of like, yeah, let's extend the map and bring you sort of above Madison Square Garden. 
where you're looking down on the city and then a little bit of surrealism there where like the player the 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 figures are like oversized compared to the buildings and they're almost like warming up before the game yeah in the in the in the you know the squares and in, in the avenues yeah that's amazing now i know another massive collab for you very i think recently well one of the more recent ones maybe this happened after the Knicks and the Chicago Bulls but is Nike so how did that happen and what's the story behind that the Nike collab yeah like i think these random emails that come in my inbox i'm always so surprised when they come in because it's like i know i want to work with these brands but i don't want to rush it and i don't want to come off too strong and so i just stick to my guns i just stick to what i do best which is like finding something fresh and bringing it to light and making it make sense with the rest of my body of work like it's a new interpretation always i'm trying to find what's the next fresh thing that i can sink my teeth into whether it's a subject matter a style, a theme, a medium. And I think uh, that hasn't really steered me wrong. It just takes time. It, like, it, it's only a matter of time before they've hired all your competition <laughs> to do the project. I don't even like to think of my other fr artist friends like competition, but you know they work with a lot of artists and then eventually they gotta get something fresh. And as long as you're making something fresh, like you're gonna get some amazing people hitting you up sooner or later, it just takes time. Um, well the, yeah, the Nike was the same. It just came in the inbox and they had, uh, it was actually the people who work inside the stores that had known my work from the murals. So that's another reason why like murals just like led to so many different things because just the foot traffic, you see the artist's name right there. And if it's on your commute to work, you kind of like fall in love with the murals on, on your way to work and you see them every day. And um, I think that the Nike employees really enjoyed some of the pieces I had up near their stores. And so they reached out about doing a collab for Air Max Day. And it was only two months before Air Max Day. So there wasn't really enough time to make a custom shoe. And it was still on the tail end of uh, the supply chain issues that came with the pandemic. So we did everything that we could do besides a shoe, which was apparel, uh, enamel pins, like a whole custom merch bar that was on their, their uh, main New York City store where you could go and pick something off the shelf and then get my artwork sort of ironed onto it, pressed into it. And you could customize it to make a collage of different graphics if you wanted to, to like put your own spin on it. Um, I did a couple other things for them, like these trading cards that were based off of the different Air Max models. That was like different stores you had to go to on Air Max day. This is just like a one day exclusive thing. And then whatever graphics were left over kind of stayed in that store. And then it, and then it ran its course and small little limited edition New York thing. And I hope to do more with them soon. I, I'm still hoping one day we'll get to do a shoe. Um, but actually okay. since, since we're talking about it, I, uh, a collector of mine, it's coming, it's coming up on one year since Air Max day and a collector of mine is next week, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The 20, I think it's the 26th. Um, they, a collector of mine reached out to me saying, I love that drawing you did of the Air Max. I know you didn't get to do a pair of shoes, but could you do a custom pair of shoes for me that looks like that drawing? And so he sent me a pair of white Air Max. And I did my thing on it. Let me grab it for you. I have it right here. Oh, custom sneakers. Oh, those look great. Yo. Yeah. So this, this is like a custom, like one of one, custom one of one for like a collector who reached out that you've, you've made yeah. this for them. Pretty much, yeah. And it looks just like the drawing that I, I did for Nike. It's like a pin. It's the same thing as the enamel pin as well. Um, I added some, some new things to it because it obviously is a 3d shoe, but 
Yeah, I'm really stoked on how these came out. I would honestly buy one of those if that was available. You know, when, when you have your Nike shoe, whenever that is, maybe it's <laughs> next year, year after, like I'll, I look forward to the F.line. line. Yeah, the custom stuff, I'm doing another pair right here of Jordans. The custom oh, stuff takes, takes a lot of time. And I, uh, I always appreciate when people reach out, but I can't, I can't do that many of them every month. And I'm hoping that one day we'll have a shoe that's just produced in the right, the right quantity that everybody can get their hands on. Well, yeah. quickly, before we, uh, I was going to go into some of your art that we can look over, but thinking about just like collabs and dealing with these different brands and stuff, whether it's Tops, Nike, or the Bulls, how do you like balance that out? Do you try to allocate that to be like a certain percentage of your time? How do you like feel these requests? Because I'm sure now you're probably getting more. What's like an ideal brand for you? Like, how do you, how do you d discern what's worth your time or not and how much time you should spend on it? That is one of the hardest things about running a creative business. And I certainly don't have it mastered yet uh, because every week is like a new surprise with things that take longer than they should have or that I thought they were going to, or just opportunities coming in that seem exciting versus what I am currently doing or what I had planned on what I had planned to do if, if that opportunity didn't come in. So I have to shift things around a lot. And uh, I've tried working with project managers and agents and, and business managers. Currently I'm on my own. I have one assistant that works with me right now. Um, that might change in the future where I'm, I'm getting a little more help on this because just fielding those inquiries takes a lot of energy away from actually doing the work that I want to do each day. And uh, I, I want to give them all their proper time, but I, I don't have, you know, more than 24 hours in a day. So I think that's, it's something where it's, it's just pretty loose with me. Like I have, I have projects that have to get done and then I save like maybe 30% of my time to be flexible. Uh, and I don't, I also don't schedule out everything. Like I just know what's my main focus each week and I do it when I'm ready to do it within, of course, within the, the timeline. But I don't say like from four to 6 PM, I'm working on this. And from two to 4 PM, I'm working on this. Like it's a lot more fluid. I, and I try to just save some, some time to sit around and do nothing because that's when my best stuff comes to me. And, uh, you can't really schedule that. Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe this is the best time to talk about your best stuff or at least pieces you like to talk about. I know we've, we've picked in advance some of your works. We've already kind of showed, showed one to the audience, but let me go through some of these right here and tell me a bit more about what this is. Yeah. So this piece is called you are here. And it's the first in a series of 10 that I did in 2021 called Open Minds. And the series of Open Minds was my first NFT collection. It was all one of one animations. Um, oh. You're not seeing the animation here, but if you can imagine, it's just the lines are just wiggling a little bit to create a bit of depth and motion to it. Um, and the whole concept behind Open Minds was I myself was opening my own mind to the idea of owning something digitally, authenticating this way, a new world that could potentially exist on top of the internet, di different ideas of value, just listening in on all kinds of different visionaries at the yeah. time that were, that were kind of speculating about what's going to happen with this technology. And uh, I knew it would change the art world. And I knew that in 2021, I, I wanted to get this collection out. And I think uh, this, this was the first one that came out and it was originally done on as a, as a drawing on paper that I then like extended into this animation. And there was just something that felt really fresh about th the amount of information that you're getting. Because if you see, there's similar to that Nick's piece, there's the grid 
uh, diagonal lines that kind of keeps it all together. And then there's some characters, some faces, some iconography. There's a little fire hydrant if there, if you're looking close. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of locks like the scale for you. So everything else is in relation to the fire hydrant, essentially. Um, and, and I think just visually, I really enjoyed the, the different sort of tricks I was able to play in this one. And it led on to a ton of other work in this style. Um, and this was just the very first one that I wanted to share. And I think just like also leaning into white background, yeah. pop colors, that also defined a lot of my work going forward after this in digital and physical. I just really started to see like, this captures a lot of my essence. Um, and it's pretty open to interpretation beyond that. Like, I hope that different people see different things in it and I can keep going, but you know, the, the crosswalks, the skateboards, the benches, the fountains, like it's all here for me. And depending on how you look at it, it gives you a different like mental image, which I love. Yeah. Just, just to comment on that. I mean, when you mentioned the fire hydrant, like it all kind of clicked for me. And then I started seeing like this sort of technicolor crosswalk in New York city now, cause I'm kind of comparing it to also the New York Knicks one. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm sure like, like as the longer I, but then also as I'm thinking about it, um, staring at some of it right now, looks like some, I can see some like Picasso in there too. Some of the more like abstract stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm seeing many different ways to interpret this. And, and it seems like each moment I spend looking at it, I can see more and more details. Yeah, that's the whole idea is like something that's deceptively simple, becoming more complex, like the more you enjoy, the more that you open up your curiosity to it. That was the idea behind Open Minds. And um, this was just number one. I ended up doing 10 different auctions for these that were open, starting up pretty low and it bl kind of blew me away. The, the project ended up on the homepage of OpenSea while it was live and it really kicked off my like NFT journey in such a positive way. And like everybody who bid on that, I'm just eternally grateful because they didn't have much to go off of, right? It was my first yeah. NFT collection. And um, I haven't put out a large collections. I haven't put out any other collections really since like yeah. this, but I've been certainly like building off of the energy from this as a, as a foundational one. Yeah. Um, so the next one is more recent, but you can see a lot of similarities. Yeah. This one I painted on canvas actually first this we're looking at the digitized version, but if you can imagine it was a wall size painting, like 16 feet wide. And I used uh, four inch paint rollers to do each line. So I would just kind of bring the whole paint roller like this. And this was an improvised painting. So all I had was the colors chosen, the blue background chosen, and a rough idea in my mind based on some of the other pieces I've done with open minds. I knew I wanted to like bring the scale of the lines up much larger to create that sort of abstract effect, but like even more than what I had done in the past, just the boldest, biggest lines I had really drawn um, or painted. So this was during Art Basel. I was down in Miami uh, the first week of December last year. And I had this really interesting location. It was outside of the NFT Now gallery. Mm -hmm. I have some friends that work over at NFT Now and a few weeks before Basel, they hit me up to, to do something, um, surprisingly a physical piece for uh, an NFT gallery. It was right outside of a digital gallery where there were just screens and projectors everywhere. So it was this interesting juxtaposition of, here's this guy in a glass box painting, you know, mm -hmm. in a, it was basically a storefront. Yeah. Um, where I was painting live. And then right on the other side of that was this digital gallery. This piece was called Eye of the City. And 
I felt like in that moment, I was in the eye of the city. I was in a storefront in the middle of downtown Miami during Art Basel. I was like, how did I get here? You know, like <laughs> it felt so much energy just from being in that moment, like in, in the, the digital renaissance where I'm like yeah. bridging both physical and digital. And I ended up putting this as my first piece on Super Rare this year. And so the, I, there's an animation as well to this one where some of the dots and lines are getting more blurry and more crisp, um, which creates like even more depth and a bit of the hustle and bustle. There's like definitely some similar iconography here with uh, You Are Here and, and this yeah. piece though. Yeah, I, I can see the parallels between this and the previous piece. Um, it's interesting because I, I, if, if I take a look ahead to the next piece, it seems slightly, I guess there's, there's, there's parallels as well, but it seems like a slightly different route there. Is that right? Like, how would you describe the process involved in this one? This is some earlier work. This was actually a project for WeWork when I was there uh, oh. in 2019. The reason I shared this one is because it's my biggest mural to date. Uh, hard to see scale here, I guess, but the, the core is about uh, like 80 feet wide. Oh like, or long at its longest, and then about 35 feet wide. So it was uh, this rooftop in a WeWork in, Mex in uh, Monterey, Mexico. And this was bef bef while I was sort of inventing my style and my characters, like I was very inspired by Latin American art and like everything I was seeing down there. And it just kind of flowed out. And I was very surprised that this even made it to a WeWork because it's so much in line with my current style. It doesn't feel commercial. It feels like something that I would have made with, without the client, you know? And I had a bunch of designs that I showed to, to the team working on this project. And this was the one they went with. And it was like, all right, I guess we're painting these giant blobs on a rooftop in Mexico. And, and you know, I, I wish we could see photos of people using the cord because for scale, it's really wild. Like, um, and to me, like this character symbolizes a lot of things. I made it when I was feeling homesick on, on this journey throughout Latin America. Uh, but it became this sort of stoicism mixed with uh, optimism, mixed with uh, like childhood wonder, mixed with like closeness, uh, almost looks like a, a, someone curled up on a, on a bed or like a baby curled up. So there's a lot of different feelings that people get from looking at the character. I like that it keeps evolving. I like that it just got so simple yet so bold and and like large like i don't know that's why i wanted to share this one but it was, it was an older piece that if you go to the next one you'll see some some like how the, the characters sort of evolved from there and this piece came out shortly after it was in 2020 um i turned 30 years old in in 2020 so i decided to play with that theme of 30. so here you're seeing 30 different symbols uh, it's called Hieroglyphs 2, but the, the number 30 is kind of hidden in the title. And also, um, it's an addition of 30. So it was a really cool piece that I, I just knew that this artwork would be something special and just like a bit of the process. I was creating these in my first art studio uh, during the pandemic. Simultaneously, like Black Lives Matter protests are happening, out, happening in New York. People are dying. Like, it was a really tough time. And I, I just wanted something, some kind of practice that I could do in my studio, which was a new place for me to explore. Um, it felt very free to have my own little bubble amidst that. That was the benefit of the tops project is it gave me some, some consistent work that I was like, all right, I can finally get a studio, small little corner spot. And 
I would do these drawings on eight inch by eight inch paper about this big. And I was using my paint markers that I typically use. You can see some of them behind me, but like each line was just one stroke. A lot of that obs obsession came with, uh, with my lettering and my, I learned about sign painting and about how like when you're painting a sign, you're trying to do it in as few strokes as possible so that it dries like really neat. That led me to more like studying of graffiti, studying of, of, of lettering and led to these symbols that were just kind of naturally flowing out of me during a time of unrest and uh, uncertainty where I just needed something to comfort me. And so I drove a draw like flowers and characters and symbols that evoked joy and re reminded me of the beautiful things in life. Uh, I ended up selling them all as original drawings and raising money for charity. During that time, it was this uh, civil rights, so, sorry, social justice uh, charity uh, called Color of Change. And we raised like 15K from that project. Then we did the prints later on, eventually got them animated and it's been evolving since. And, and this is like a, a foundational like visual language that I'm just like continuing to explore. <laughs> it's an amazing story behind it's it. It's heavy, um, but yeah. Thanks, yeah, thanks no, man. So I love it. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate you for sharing all those, uh, your different pieces. It's interesting. It's like I've seen different chapters of your life and different elements, sides of you based on whatever was happening at that exact moment. Uh, I'm interested to, to move to some of the other ones you picked. So you also picked some other artists that inspire you. So I think we're going to start off here with the, the MC Escher one, right? So... Should we go through this? Yeah. So this is one of Escher's famous like tessellation inspired pieces. He's done some literal tessellations where it's a pattern that you could see like on a fabric, but this one has a mix of the map and kind of that grid that we're looking at in some of my pieces. I'm just, I'm just kind of putting it together. The, the 30 degree, 60 degree angles that he's using here, like really inspired me to abstract that even further. But I, I just love his use of positive and negative space and like kind of tricking the eye into seeing different things as you're as you move around the composition. Um, it's hard to let this go. Like you ever see a movie that just sticks with you? Yeah. And like why why that movie, right? Like you ever think about that? Like what's the reason why that movie sticks with you? And then sometimes you like connect the dots across like a bunch of movies or a bunch of artists that like really stick with you and you start to see trends. So I think for me the positive and negative space and and the, the structure within or the chaos versus structure yeah. is a, uh, is a theme that, that I see a lot with Escher's work. And I, and my grandmother showed me his work very young age, just like the obsession with craft. These are like etchings where he would like, so ever so carefully lay each line down, like in a analog process. So just the fact that somebody made this by hand is really inspiring. That's amazing. Um, so the next one here, can you tell us about this one you picked as well? Yeah, so this piece and the, and the next one are both from the same artist, uh, from Ava Zeisel. So I didn't mention, but when I was in college, I did a minor of product design. And I, it wasn't uh, digital products, it was physical products. And we studied uh, all kinds of industrial designers, everything from like the 10 principles of design with Dieter Rams to artists like this one, Ava Zeisel. And her whole message was that her work was there to represent this playful search for beauty. That's the title of her book, the playful search for a playful search for beauty. Uh, and that just really resonated with me. Like you can see that in my work, how she's sort of using nesting forms that hug each other, that create a sense, a sense of like, you're, you're almost feeling the hug that just by looking at it, uh, you're feeling like a warm energy, like a human energy, keeping some of that human touch. I mean, it's mathematical too, right? There's, there's a sine wave here that we're seeing, but 
just the way that the colors were placed and the way that each piece has like a little dimple in it, it really feels like it was touched by a human. You can see where her hands yeah. were left. And then the next piece, the same, it's like the nesting pots uh, really just stuck with me. Uh, the idea that there's these individual bodies, but they're all come together in this like unison, this harmony, this chaos, but, but order um, is really fascinating to me. And I don't, I don't talk too much about her work uh, publicly because no, nobody really knows her work. It's like, her, you, you, I mean, everyone I talk to like hasn't heard of her work. So you have to really know uh, about the history of, of sculpture and pottery or, or of industrial design to know her name and not everybody does. I tend to, to go in more circles with artists these days versus designers. Uh, but you can definitely see her work in like Crate and Barrel if you just like walk in. Like they bought a lot of they bought a lot of her silhouettes and they mass produced them for everyone now. And um, that's why it might be familiar looking. Okay. Man, I feel like I'm getting this like holistic view of Epton. His his inspirations, <laughs> his different pieces. Uh, and it's, it's like starting to make sense. Like each additional piece you bring together, I'm starting to see like parallels or like some, like where this might influence this. That's, it's very awesome. Thank you again for sharing. Uh, I know you've also sent another, so Jake Freed, uh, before we go to the Jack Butcher one. So tell us about, so who's Jake Freed and what's the story behind this guy? Let's look at like the second video. If we're going to show one, uh, go down. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Yeah. So I really like Jake's work. It just came onto my radar in the last couple years but his process was the most fascinating thing to me let's just like look at it for a second let it play because it's so visually stimulating and interesting to me his process is that he draws these by hand with a sharpie marker and white out and he goes frame by frame just drawing over the last frame editing it slightly, editing it slightly, editing it slightly. And so he'll white out a little area of the composition and then bring in a new object and bring in new light and shadow. It's, in, it's amazing the way that he's created this sort of physical process that leads to a digital product because the physical is destroyed as soon as he draws over it. Really? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not destroyed, but it's, it's, saying, yeah, it's yeah. no longer intact because he's laying new art on top of it, essentially, yeah. new ink. So he has to scan each frame yeah. as he's creating it to create this effect. And it's al he's almost created like a genre in, its, uh, in itself, which is perfect for our digital time because it's our digital, um, digital art movement because there is no physical. It's like poetic in that way where the physical is, you know, only the last frame is, is in existence intact, right? Yeah. It, it kind of like gives like a life cycle to art as well because it's like, it's like each, it's like layers of an onion, if you will, you know, where like each layer that gets added on top, it's, it's like, it's like a lifespan of, of a piece. Um, this is amazing. Uh, yeah. And he, he doesn't plan his pieces for the most part, he said. Wow. So it's, it, it, that was what I was most inspired by is like, he's very much like me in that I don't like to plan everything. I like to let the first kind of mark on the paper dictate the next mark, dictate the next mark. And eventually you have something that's kind of intuitive and beautiful and it makes sense for what you were, what you were feeling at the time or what you were trying to, to get out of you onto, onto yeah. the page. Uh, and he does that, but the finished product is this one minute long or, or 30 second long, whatever video yeah. that is just this like very psychedelic, but, but still black and white uh, journey that you go through through his mind. And it's just like an amalgamation, very much like my glyphs. It's an amalgamation of all these different 
themes and symbols and cycles that uh, that we've come into contact with, like in our education, in our lives, in our lives, yeah. like the meaningful symbols that you see a lot of similar symbols in his work uh, versus work from like Egyptian um, mm. Egyptian hieroglyphs and and things like that, uh, or or folk art where yeah. it was just hundreds of years of humanity led to these sort of visual languages that he's building on. Wow. Now the the last piece that you want us to go through was. Jack Butcher, who's really made a name for himself in NFTs recently. So um, maybe for, for someone that has complete blank slate here, could you tell us about Jack Butcher and this piece and, and why, why you want to take a look at it? Yeah, we can spend a little time. I feel like uh, the, the Jack Butcher checks project is everywhere right now. So people have yeah. seen it if they're on Twitter. It's yeah. a really interesting dialogue that he's creating between people and companies because of Twitter's sort of $8 move to, or I think it's $11 now to get mm -hmm. verified. Um, whereas before it was about verification uh, based on your notability. Now anybody can be verified just for paying $8. Yeah. So as an artist, like he is brilliant to see that as something worth commenting on, worth sort of expanding on and creating an art project around it. Because it's, it's this idea of like everybody... Everybody who, who takes social media seriously, which, which isn't everybody, there's a lot of people who are not on social media at all, but if you're on social media, verification does matter because you're taking information from sources. You yourself maybe are creating content and you want people to know that it's like a reputable source or um, someone who's well-known in the industry. So verification does matter, whether, regardless of whether we want to admit it or not. Um, and a lot of people strive, strive for that blue check mark. And then Jack just goes and makes an art project and says, okay, here you go. Here's a check for $8 but this one's an NFT and the, it, you know, not much else, not much, not much other context. He referenced yeah. Damien Hirst uh, with his dots in a grid and, and just like created this monster that, <laughs> that evolves on chain. It, you know, I think the big breakthrough for me with the checks project was the contract is, is a part of the art where the way that people are merging and kind of, combining or uh, burning the pieces to create new pieces is a part of the art. So it's, it's the audience is now intertwined with the creation of the art part of the process. It's almost like when you go into a gallery and you might see some interactive art exhibits, except this one's just all over the world. Like everybody is commenting about it or giving their own remix of it. Um, and he didn't even create the symbol, which I think is a very genius move. It's very, it's, it reminds me of like Andy Warhol style, just like find an image, that's that sparks a very strong emotion at the specific time that we're in and just exploded out to be this giant piece of meme art basically. And I have a very complicated like opinion on, on like memes these days, but this one I think was done very tastefully and it continues to uh, give me inspiration. And even before this project, Jack was just uh, an amazing storyteller yeah. in, in, in his simplicity. And I think my glyphs and my like simpler styles uh, have a lot in common with the way that he tells like stories with visualized value. Yeah. Uh, his other project. Yeah. Well, I think I, I was aware of course, like the, the checks project, but now that you describe it, it adds this entirely new layer of me for me in terms of appreciating it as this truly like interactive piece. That's not just, Oh, cool checks, but there's so many layers to this. That I didn't even realize that you were explaining it. So I can understand why this is kind of 
pioneering new elements of what this art form is. Maybe this is a, is a good time for me to kind of ask your opinion yeah. on. Um, yeah, sorry. Was there anything else? Um, I was just going to say, if anybody's curious, like that whole website has like a stats page, which I thought was one of the most interesting parts because you can see how people are interacting with the, with the project. And it, that was, I think, it's something I'm trying to embody in my next collection is like, how can we make you as a collector feel like you're a part of the artwork? Um, and and it's, it's a bunch of numbers, whereas an artist, it's like, cool, whatever, like show me something beautiful. But there actually is like beauty in the trends, you see how people flock to a certain collection out of the different collections he's put up with this project. And I like the idea that it keeps attention because there's a lot going on. It's, 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 it's the right amount of complexity and chaos, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's so awesome. Um, I think maybe this, cause now I'm thinking about like other ways where like blockchain, NFT, digital pieces can, can create like a whole new avenue of what like art is. It sounds like, you know, from your, your whole artistic career, you've experimented with a variety of different ways to express art, whether it's like a mural or whether it's just like something on a canvas. Uh, the topic of NFT is I always find interesting because NFTs in the art world, there's like a mixture of people of, of like opinions on it, depending on who you talk to and the value it brings. Love to know, like, what was your journey into seeing NFTs as like a valuable medium for yourself and, and how you think that's evolved? Um, how did you get into it in the first place, NFTs? Well, it was in 2019 that I first started hearing the term. Uh, I actually had a phone call with someone from Foundation back then before they even launched. And it was a friend of a friend who like, hey, you might want to look into this, like talk to those guys. And those guys are still building strong, so good for them. Uh, they really brought me in and like sh showed me a bit of the ropes with how um, how artists are thinking, they, they send me a bunch of links. And ob obviously at the time I was, I was stuck inside like throughout 2020 and, uh, just learning through clubhouse and Twitter spaces, following all these overnight sort of success projects or, or so it seemed <laughs> some of these, these sellout projects that came out of nowhere and just everybody speculating on the value of collectibles and art in a different way that was happening much faster. Also my collectors in the tops project uh, or that, that I met through the, the tops project, my friends, collectors, and, you know, other artists were sort of looking over and seeing like, well, what if we did cards, but we also did NFTs like with them. And that wasn't really possible with the, the contract that we signed with tops because they were still doing working on their strategy. But you know, the, the collectors were asking for it. They were saying like, is this going to be available as an NFT? And I was like, okay, there's something here where I can then, and, and, I started to ask myself, why, why is the NFT so in demand? Is it just because, uh, you know, these projects making millions of dollars and, and printing money overnight for people, or is there, is there something long-term here that could be around for many, many decades or, or even longer? And I think there's a few things that sort of made me want to jump in after a lot of studying. Cause I was very skeptical at first and very unsure about it. Uh, but the, the few things that kind of stuck with me were, you know, when you, when you see a collectible piece, it's a physical thing that may get damaged. And you also may have a hard time proving its authenticity if there's no digital sort of seal of approval, because these things are easy to print and fake if you know what you're doing. So even if it has a holographic seal on it, even if it's graded by PSA or something like that, it, it's not foolproof. And that, those, are, those are expensive, cumbersome processes as well. So I thought about the idea of pairing a digital with a physical just to authenticate it. 
and the digital would be forever. The physical would eventually um, would eventually get damaged or disintegrate. But many like art from thousands, from hundreds of years ago is still in, in good shape if it's conserved well. But if it's in the sun, who knows, right? So I like the idea that the digital piece could live forever. It could show the provenance as people traded it over time, and that was transparent. And I think that was the biggest thing was it wasn't centralized. It was, uh, or, or I guess the degree to which Ethereum and other cryptos are centralized is a little debatable. There's, there's still people who have to make decisions about how it moves forward. It's not 100% decentralized, but it was a lot more transparent than what was happening at Tops, where people would buy my cards and they didn't even know how many were, were purchased before they bought it. So there's this opaque, like, sorry, you can only see that like after the fact because that's the way that we do our marketing. And that's kind of how a lot of brands run. They, they use the opaque thing to stimulate sales. The more transparency, the more information the buyer has, and the less likely they are to um, to buy. If it's if they have all that information, you know they might change their mind. So I think the transparency just feels more fair to the collector. And I was like, how can I embody some of that in the way that I'm putting out my art, so that my sales history is is public, so you can know whether you're you're getting a good price. And I think that was those were the things that really drew me to it. Also, just the idea of Taking all this, all the visual language that I had built in physical art and in static digital art, because I was drawing on my iPad for years, and then was like, what can I do with it that I haven't done with it in the digital realm? How can I make it move or interact or change colors every day? Like, there's a lot of cool possibilities with digital art, and then giving it objecthood as an NFT. Like, this is now an object that can be passed around, and we agree, at least within the crypto community, that this is a public record. And obviously it's going to keep evolving and who knows what we'll call it in a few years, whether it's NFT or digital collectible or something else. I still think art sounds pretty good. Um, I, I would really like for people to be calling my work art instead of uh, an, an NFT, but it's a new technology and it's different than what we used to call art. So I understand that, that uh, everyone has a different journey with it and, and different vocabulary that they're using perhaps. Wow. I think that might be, I'm not just saying this, like, one of the, the best ways I've heard the value of NFTs described, particularly for like an artist perspective, like all those things you mentioned. Uh, so yeah, I just want to say thank you for that. I, I, I swear, like, I think it's, it's like a better articulation that's like more nuanced than a lot of other things I've heard. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I didn't really mention the royalties situation. That's an ongoing battle for artists, yeah. I think, right now, because we, we were told that NFTs come with royalties. So whenever your piece sells, you can kind of sit back and get royalties for the hard work that you put in over your career and it, it sort of compounds. So as you're building your value, not just the collectors are able to realize that value, but you also get a portion of that value. And, and it's turning out that it's a much more of a unspoken cultural thing that you build with your collectors rather than a forced thing with NFTs because it's not a part of the technology, it's a part of the marketplace layer. And so I think it, it's, it's a cultural thing that hopefully will gain a lot more steam over the coming years because it's been in arguments since the 1970s. Like it's not a new thing about artists getting royalties. It's just, there was no way to enforce it. There still isn't a great way to enforce it with NFTs, except for just directing people to the marketplaces that enforce it, like Foundation, like, you know, Super Rare, some of these places that have it locked in. Again, I think it's about, for artists, if there's any artists listening to this, it's about uh, curating your collectors. And no one wants to hear that because it's hard, it's slow. It's like your community is what, is what carries you forward in a lot of ways. So 
if you are appealing to all of the, the DGENs who just want to get in and get out and, and sort of make their quick $100 or whatever, then it's not really a sustainable long-term thing. And those are probably the people who aren't going to necessarily honor the royalties because they're, they're not playing with money that, that they can afford to spend a lot of the time, <laughs> as I've seen. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, there's so much about NFTs and art that I think is still evolving as well, where like, I mean, if you think about it, it's only been like a couple of years since it's become like intertwined with the art world. So yeah, look forward to seeing what will develop, whether it's the royalties element or how about people like the terming, I mean, the term NFT, I don't even love yeah. to be honest. Yeah, it's like so much that's gonna keep evolving. I think a lot of smarter people are understanding the power that it's gonna have in the future, still unsure like the cultural power it will have. But the, um, the idea that you come to NFTs to buy something and get rich quick is, is becoming very quickly um, not a part of the game anymore. And a lot of people are leaving for that reason, which shows their intentions of why they came. So oh. I think uh, it's going to change really fast. And I'm really glad that it's maturing in this way because there were some times during 2021 and 2022 where I was like, there's no way that this is good art and it's being valued as if it's good art. Um, but there's something else here. There's manipulation, there's speculation, there's uh, maybe it's just the utility. That's the reason people are buying it. So I think there, there has to be a stratification of NFTs that are about uh, collectible art, fine art, and then utility. And I think that, that as the sooner we can find different marketplaces and different uh, vocabulary for these different subcultures and, and subgenres, like the better we'll be at, at moving technology forward. No, I, I love how we've kind of culminated in talking about the evolution of your career to where we are now, to how technology and society now is changing the art world, like in the modern day. Now I'd like to talk about maybe childhood F dot. You know, I think what's interesting to me is also looking at the people uh, people who, who've like collected things as a kid. And I know that when you were younger, you were a fan of sports. Like I know we touched on it briefly earlier. Um, skateboarding as well, as I understand, has been a big part of like your life. Just maybe, uh, can we talk about your hobbies and how they influence you today? I'm thinking specifically about like collecting cards and maybe skateboarding specifically. Yeah, so uh, I don't have the best memory. So some of these these memories might be a little little foggy or twisted from, from reality. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, I'll try my best. So yeah, when I was young, I, I loved collecting cards. There was this little store across the street from my school that, uh, sold baseball cards and Pokemon cards and all kinds of different things that my brother and I would save up our money and then spend it all at this place. And, um, we would try our best to kind of build the culture with our friends of like playing magic, the gathering, or like trading the actual cards with each other, or, sometimes even selling the cards, like at recess, like a little, um, a little station where we would kind of set up with our cards. So we were, we were entrepreneurs as kids, I guess, with, with, the, with the cards even um, for a little while. And that was elementary school. Uh, later on, I, I kind of grew out of collecting cards for a while. And I still, I still held on to my favorite ones. My favorite card I think I had was a, a Roberto Clemente bat card that I just oh. got in a pack of cards. Like one day it was incredible. And uh, held on to that one, still have it. And um, other hobbies that I developed at the time were like playing tennis, uh, just going around and, and, you know, being a little vandal sometimes and drawing on the walls, like some, some graffiti here and there. 
that kind of led me to skateboarding. And from there, that became like my primary hobby and passion outside of art. I see it as like very intertwined with art and the, the way that I look at my, my life and my art because there's no rules. It's, it's not a team sport where you keep score. It's oh. where everybody's there to express themselves and do, do their dance a little bit differently than the next person um, or just do something really simple, but do it really well. So it's about the style of how you're doing it. And that relates to me so much about how I approach my art um, from a skateboarder's mindset. Also just seeing, seeing the world as a playground. Like we see a piece of architecture differently than normal people because we think about how we can do a trick on it. Of course. Yeah. So um, I, I think about that with geometry. I, I look at shapes differently because I, I want to do tricks with them. And um, those are some of the things that led me to, to where I'm at today with my hobbies. I don't do as many sports. It's mainly skateboarding, snowboarding, some water sports. Um, my brother is also a big uh, extreme sports lover. So we go we on trip. We just went to Colorado for his 35th birthday. So we're still, we're still in touch with those things. I've gotten a little bit out of love with collecting uh, cards just because the Tops Project, I, I bought a lot of my friends' cards and my own cards, and I, uh, I'm still figuring out the best ways to display them in my studio even. But I love uh, finding something. I mean, these days I'm collecting like more skateboards and sometimes like limited edition apparel pieces or um, hats. This is like a new hat that I just got made. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm bridging my own work and also collecting different types of things these days. That's so awesome. I, I love seeing the connection between, you know, like that little entrepreneur vandal skateboarder and, and who you are today. Uh, I've got some like rapid fire questions, like I was telling you earlier. Um, sorry. Um, before we, we close out and just have a few questions and I'm going to go just one by one. Okay. So Let's do it. one, what is a dream collab you'd like to do one day? Besides the Nike shoe that we talked about, uh, I would love to do something for an airline where I can basically skin out a, a plane and, and get to travel around and, and do murals with that airline, essentially. That would be dope. Yeah. Uh, sorry. What would you, who is your favorite artist? You have to pick one. Um, I gave you a few earlier. <laughs> um, I, I think if I had to pick one that I haven't named yet, I would say it's uh, my college professor, John Langdon. He creates these, these lettering pieces that like flip upside down and you can like still read them. It's incredible. Like he's a magician with, with lettering. Um, yeah, another influence I didn't, get to, I didn't get to share. But I don't know, man, it's hard. Jake Fried's been really inspiring me lately as just like seeing the, seeing the world through his eyes. Yeah. How about, how about like a flip side to that question? Most underrated artists you think maybe isn't getting enough attention right now? Most underrated artists. Um, my friend Alimo is an amazing artist who I've really been digging his work lately, and he, he definitely doesn't get enough sh uh, love on his work. He he's been creating these collections of uh, both physical and digital art about his own love of extreme sports, a little more literal than me. So he'll actually draw like the snowboarding mountain with people kind of trekking across it, like little simple abstract figures, but they're so joyful and you can tell like he's been there and he's like painting his memories. Um, and these are all places that we dream about going right. Like into the, back into the mountains, like, uh, last, when was the last time you went to the mountains? Like I see his work and I, I, I instantly get transported back to when I was last in the mountains. So Alamo, A L I M O check out his stuff. On that 
Same topic. What's your dream place to travel? Dream place to travel that I haven't been before or that I have been before? That you haven't been before. Uh, I would love to go to explore Australia and, and get to see some of those beaches and kind of see what it's like down under. <laughs> Favorite skateboarder? Uh, lately, Dave Vichinsky, because he, I've actually gotten to know him and oh. he's, he's also creating work that he's minting in the NFT space and trying to create, he's actually successfully creating a culture that brings in outside skateboarders into this fold. So he, I just love what he's doing. Dave Vichinsky, he's, he's famous for kick flipping down 20 stairs, uh, a few years back. Like he, he, he did it like perfectly. And that's like the most that's ever been done. So he's like Guinness book of world records, quality skater. Uh, and he's also creating art in the NFT space, bringing in other people around him. And it's just like a beautiful thing. Um, and then finally, what is the most ambitious art project that you'd like to do one day? Most ambitious art project is the skate park. Eventually I want to build and paint yeah, a skate park. Well, I don't know if it'll call, be called that, but <laughs> it'll, uh, it'll be designed by me and, and other people that I might bring on it. But it's, it's a long-term project that I've been dreaming up. And a lot of my 2D art these days is like me dreaming about this future project and feeling like, what does it actually look like? And it becomes an artwork in itself. Um, and uh, I know that it'll take me a long time to even just find the piece of land. So I'm not, I'm not going to rush it, but that's my, that's, that's the like le legacy project that I want to leave behind because I, as things get more and more digital and I see people like playing more video games, I just want to remind people that you can also go outside and like go skateboarding or do something reckless and like scrape your knees. And you'll probably learn a lot in the process and feel really good after you land the trick. So <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. Now the last two questions I have are the same ones I ask every podcast guest. Uh, the first being where can people find you on like social media, website, et cetera. And the second being, uh, where can, what's one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? So where you can find me is on Twitter at f.studio or on Instagram at f.efdot. And my website is just f.studio.com that has links to everything else. Uh, in terms of a last message that I want to leave you with, I would say just remember that getting to make something is a gift and it's not something to be seen as only a commodity. It, there's some deep inherent value in art that goes far beyond something that can be tra tracked on a price chart. And I want to remind people that that will come out in the long term, not the short term. It takes curious curiosity to find that. And I think the curious people will be rewarded. Amazing. Thank you so much, man. Cheers, dude. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a really good combo. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about FDOT in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you.